Section nine of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two, by James Boswell. Section nine. Seventeen seventy two. Continued. On Saturday, March twenty seven. I introduced to him Sir Alexander MacDonald, with whom he had expressed a wish to be acquainted. He received him very courteously. Sir Alexander observed that the chancellors in England are chosen from views much inferior to the office, being chosen from temporary political views. Johnson, why, sir, in such a government as ours, no man is appointed to an office because he is the fittest for it, nor hardly in any other government because there are so many connections and dependencies to be studied. A despotic prince may choose a man to an office merely because he is the fittest for it. The King of Prussia may do it. Sir A. I think, sir, almost all great lawyers, such at least as have written upon law, have known only law and nothing else. Johnson. Why, no, sir. Judge Hale was a great lawyer and wrote upon law, and yet he knew a great many other things and has written upon other things, Selden too. Sir A. Very true, sir, and Lord Bacon. But was not Lord Coke a mere lawyer? Johnson. Why, I am afraid he was, but he would have taken it very ill if you had told him so. He would have prosecuted you for scandal. Boswell. Lord Mansfield is not a mere lawyer? Johnson. No, sir. I never was in Lord Mansfield's company, but Lord Mansfield was distinguished at the university. Lord Mansfield, when he first came to town, drank champagne with the wits, as Pryor says. He was the friend of Pope. Sir A. Barristers, I believe, are not so abusive now as they were formerly. I fancy they had less law long ago, and so were obliged to take to abuse, to fill up the time. Now they have such a number of precedents, they have no occasion for abuse. Johnson? Nay, sir, they had more law long ago than they have now. As to precedents, to be sure they will increase in course of time, but the more precedents there are, the less occasion is there for law, that is to say, the less occasion is there for investigating principles. Sir A. I have been correcting several Scotch accents in my friend Boswell. I doubt, sir, if any Scotchman ever attains to a perfect English pronunciation. Johnson. Why, sir, few of them do, because they do not persevere after acquiring a certain degree of it. But, sir, there can be no doubt that they may attain to a perfect English pronunciation if they will. We find how near they come to it, and certainly a man who conquers nineteen parts of the Scottish accent may conquer the twentieth. But, sir, when a man has got the better of nine-tenths, he grows wary, he relaxes his diligence, he finds he has corrected his accent so far as not to be disagreeable, and he no longer desires his friends to tell him when he is wrong, nor does he choose to be told. Sir, when people watch me narrowly, and I do not watch myself, they will find me out to be of a particular county. In the same manner, Dunning may be found out to be a Devonshire man. So most Scotchmen may be found out. But, sir, little aberrations are of no disadvantage. I never catched Mallet in a Scotch accent, 
and yet Mallet, I suppose, was past five-and-twenty before he came to London. Upon another occasion I talked to him on this subject, having myself taken some pains to improve my pronunciation by the aid of the late Mr. Love, of Drury Lane Theatre, when he was a player at Edinburgh, and also of old Mr. Sheridan. Johnson said to me, "'Sir, your pronunciation is not offensive.' With this concession I was pretty well satisfied, and let me give my countrymen of North Britain an advice not to aim at absolute perfection in this respect, not to speak high English, as we are apt to call what is far removed from the Scotch, but which is by no means good English, and makes the fools who use it truly ridiculous. Good English is plain, easy, and smooth in the mouth of an unaffected English gentleman. A studied and fictitious pronunciation, which requires perpetual attention, and imposes perpetual constraint, is exceedingly disgusting. A small intermixture of provincial peculiarities may, perhaps, have an agreeable effect, as the notes of different birds concur in the harmony of the grove, and please more than if they were all exactly alike. I could name some gentlemen of Ireland, to whom a slight proportion of the accent and recitative of the country is an advantage. The same observation will apply to the gentlemen of Scotland. I do not mean that we should speak as broad as a certain prosperous member of Parliament from that country, though it has been well observed that it has been of no small use to him, as it rouses the attention of the house by its uncommonness, and is equal to tropes and figures in a good English speaker. I would give as an instance of what I mean to recommend to my countrymen the pronunciation of the late Sir Gilbert Elliot, and may I presume to add that of the present Earl of Marchmont, who told me, with great good humour, that the master of a shop in London, where he was not known, said to him, "'I suppose, sir, you are an American.' "'Why so, sir?' said his lordship. "'Because, sir,' replied the shopkeeper, "'you speak neither English nor Scotch, but something different from both, which I conclude is the language of America.' Boswell. "'It may be of use, sir, to have a dictionary to ascertain the pronunciation.' Johnson. "'Why, sir, my dictionary shows you the accents of words, if you can but remember them.' Boswell. "'But, sir, we want marks to ascertain the pronunciation of the vowels. Sheridan, I believe, has finished such a work.' Johnson. "'Why, sir, consider how much easier it is to learn a language by the ear than by any marks.' Sheridan's dictionary may do very well, but you cannot always carry it about with you, and when you want the word you have not the dictionary. It is like a man who has a sword that will not draw. It is an admirable sword, to be sure, but while your enemy is cutting your throat you are unable to use it. Besides, sir, what entitles Sheridan to fix the pronunciation of English? He has, in the first place, the disadvantage of being an Irishman, and if he says he will fix it, after the example of the best company, why, they differ among themselves. I remember an instance, when I published the plan for my dictionary, Lord Chesterfield told me that the word great should be pronounced so as to rhyme to state, and Sir William Young sent me word that it should be pronounced so as to rhyme to seat, and that none but an Irishman would pronounce it great. Now here were two men of the highest rank, the one the best speaker in the House of Lords, the other the best speaker in the House of Commons, differing entirely. I again visited him at night, 
Finding him in a very good humour, I ventured to lead him to the subject of our situation in a future state, having much curiosity to know his notions on that point. Johnson? Why, sir, the happiness of an unembodied spirit will consist in a consciousness of the favour of God, in the contemplation of truth, and in the possession of felicitating ideas. Boswell? But, sir, is there any harm in our forming to ourselves conjectures as to the particulars of our happiness, though the scripture has said but very little on the subject? We know not what we shall be. Johnson? Sir, there is no harm. What philosophy suggests to us on this topic is probable. What scripture tells us is certain. Dr. Henry Moore has carried it as far as philosophy can. You may buy both his theological and philosophical works in two volumes folio for about eight shillings. Boswell? One of the most pleasing thoughts is that we shall see our friends again. Johnson? Yes, sir. But you must consider that when we are become purely rational, many of our friendships will be cut off. Many friendships are formed by a community of sensual pleasures. All these will be cut off. We form many friendships with bad men because they have agreeable qualities, and they can be useful to us. But after death they can no longer be of use to us. We form many friendships by mistake, imagining people to be different from what they really are. After death we shall see every one in a true light. Then, sir, they talk of our meeting our relations. But then all relationship is dissolved, and we shall have no regard for one person more than another, but for their real value. However, we shall either have the satisfaction of meeting our friends, or be satisfied without meeting them. Boswell. Yet, sir, we see in Scripture that Dives still retained an anxious concern about his brethren. Johnson? Why, sir, we must either suppose that passage to be metaphorical, or hold with many divines and all the purgatorians that departed souls do not all at once arrive at the utmost perfection of which they are capable. Boswell? I think, sir, that is a very rational supposition. Johnson? Why, yes, sir, but we do not know it is a true one. There is no harm in believing it, but you must not compel others to make it an article of faith, for it is not revealed. Boswell? Do you think, sir, it is wrong in a man who holds the doctrine of purgatory to pray for the souls of his deceased friends? Johnson? Why, no, sir. Boswell? I have been told that in the liturgy of the Episcopal Church of Scotland there was a form of prayer for the dead. Johnson? Sir, it is not in the liturgy which Lord framed for the Episcopal Church of Scotland. If there is a liturgy older than that, I should be glad to see it. Boswell, as to our employment in a future state, the sacred writings say little. The revelation, however, of St. John gives us many ideas, and particularly mentions music. Johnson, why, sir, ideas must be given you by means of something which you know, and as to music, there are some philosophers and divines who have maintained that we shall not be spiritualized to such a degree, but that something of matter, very much refined, will remain. In that case, music may make a part of our future felicity. Boswell, I do not know whether there are any well-attested stories of the appearance of ghosts. You know there is a famous story of the appearance of Mrs. Veal, prefixed to Drelincourt on death. Johnson? 
"'I believe, sir, that is given up. "'I believe the woman declared upon her deathbed "'that it was a lie.' "'Boswell? "'This objection is made against the truth of ghosts appearing, "'that if they are in a state of happiness "'it would be a punishment to them to return to this world, "'and if they are in a state of misery "'it would be giving them a respite.' "'Johnson? "'Why, sir, as the happiness or misery of embodied spirits does not depend upon place, but is intellectual, we cannot say that they are less happy or less miserable by appearing on earth. We went down between twelve and one to Mrs. Williams' room, and drank tea. I mentioned that we were to have the remains of Mr. Gray, in prose and verse, published by Mr. Mason. Johnson? I think we have had enough of Gray. I see they have published a splendid edition of Ackenside's works. One bad ode may be suffered, but a number of them together makes one sick. Boswell. Ackenside's distinguished poet is his pleasures of imagination, but for my part I never could admire it so much as most people do. Johnson. Sir, I could not read it through. Boswell. I have read it through but I did not find any great power in it. I mentioned Elwell, the heretic, whose trial Sir John Pringle had given me to read. Johnson? Sir, Mr. Elwell was, I think, an ironmonger at Wolverhampton, and he had a mind to make himself famous by being the founder of a new sect, which he wished much should be called Elwellians. He held that everything in the Old Testament that was not typical was to be of perpetual observance, and so he wore a riband in the plates of his coat, and he also wore a beard. I remember I had the honour of dining in company with Mr. Elwell. There was one barter, a miller, who wrote against him, and you had the controversy between Mr. Elwell and Mr. Barter. To try to make himself distinguished, he wrote a letter to King George the Second, challenging him to dispute with him, in which he said, George, if you be afraid to come by yourself to dispute with a poor old man, you may bring a thousand of your black guards with you, and if you should still be afraid, you may bring a thousand of your red guards. The letter had something of the impudence of Junius to our present king, but the men of Wolverhampton were not so inflammable as the common council of London, so Mr. Elwell failed in his scheme of making himself a man of great consequence. On Tuesday, March 31st, he and I dined at General Paoli's. A question was started whether the state of marriage was natural to man. Johnson? Sir, it is so far from being natural for a man and woman to live in a state of marriage that we find all the motives which they have for remaining in that connection and the restraints which civilized society imposes to prevent separation are hardly sufficient to keep them together. The general said that in a state of nature a man and woman uniting together would form a strong and constant affection by the mutual pleasure each would receive, and that the same causes of dissension would not arise between them as occur between husband and wife in a civilized state. Johnson, sir, they would have dissensions enough, though of another kind. One would choose to go hunting in this wood, the other in that. One would choose to go a-fishing in this lake, the other in that or perhaps one would choose to go a-hunting when the other would choose to go a-fishing, and so they would part. Besides, sir, a savage man and a savage woman meet by chance, and when the man sees another woman that pleases him better, he will leave the first. We then fell into a disquisition whether there is any beauty independent of utility. 
the general maintained there was not. Dr. Johnson maintained that there was, and he instanced to a coffee-cup which he held in his hand, the painting of which was of no real use, as the cup would hold the coffee equally well if plain, yet the painting was beautiful. We talked of the strange custom of swearing in conversation. The general said that all barbarous nations swore from a certain violence of temper that could not be confined to earth, but was always reaching at the powers above. He said, too, that there was greater variety of swearing in proportion as there was a greater variety of religious ceremonies. Dr. Johnson went home with me to my lodgings in Conduit Street and drank tea previous to our going to the Pantheon, which neither of us had seen before. He said, Goldsmith's life of Parnell is poor, not that it is poorly written, but that he had poor materials, for nobody can write the life of a man but those who have eaten, drunk, and lived in social intercourse with him. I said that if it was not troublesome and presuming too much, I would request him to tell me all the little circumstances of his life, what schools he attended, when he came to Oxford, when he came to London, etc., etc. He did not disapprove of my curiosity as to these particulars, but said, "'They'll come out by degrees as we talk together.' He censured Ruffat's life of Pope, and said, "'He knew nothing of Pope, and nothing of poetry.' He praised Dr. Joseph Wharton's essay on Pope, but said he supposed we should have no more of it, as the author had not been able to persuade the world to think of Pope as he did. Boswell, why, sir, should that prevent him from continuing his work? He is an ingenious counsel, who has made the most of his cause. He is not obliged to gain it. Johnson, but, sir, there is a difference when the cause is of a man's own making. We talked of the proper use of riches. Johnson, if I were a man of great estate, I would drive all the rascals whom I did not like out of the county at an election. I asked him how far he thought wealth should be employed in hospitality. Johnson, you are to consider that ancient hospitality, of which we hear so much, was in an uncommercial country, when men being idle were glad to be entertained at rich men's tables. But in a commercial country, a busy country, time becomes precious, and therefore hospitality is not so much valued. No doubt there is still room for a certain degree of it, and a man has a satisfaction in seeing his friends eating and drinking around him, but promiscuous hospitality is not the way to gain real influence. You must help some people at table before others. You must ask some people how they like their wine oftener than others. You therefore offend more people than you please. You are like the French statement who says, when he granted the favour, J'ai fait dix mécontents et un ingrat. Besides, sir, being entertained ever so well at a man's table impresses no lasting regard or esteem. No, sir, the way to make sure of power and influence is by lending money confidentially to your neighbours at a small interest, or perhaps at no interest at all, and having their bonds in your possession. Boswell May not a man, sir, employ his riches to advantage in educating young men of merit? Johnson, yes, sir, if they fall in your way, but if it be understood that you patronize young men of merit, you will be harassed with solicitations. You will have numbers forced upon you who have no merit. Some will force them upon you from mistaken partiality, and some from downright interested motives, without scruple, and you will be disgraced. 
Were I a rich man, I would propagate all kinds of trees that will grow in the open air. A greenhouse is childish. I would introduce foreign animals into the country, for instance, the reindeer. The conversation now turned on critical subjects. Johnson, Bayes in the rehearsal is a mighty silly character. If it was intended to be like a particular man, it could only be diverting while that man was remembered. But I question whether it was meant for Dryden, as has been reported, for we know some of the passages said to be ridiculed were written since the rehearsal. At least a passage mentioned in the preface is of a later date. I maintained that it had merit as a general satire on the self-importance of dramatic authors, but even in this light he held it very cheap. We then walked to the Pantheon. The first view of it did not strike us so much as Ranelagh, of which he said, the coup de was the finest thing he had ever seen. The truth is, Ranelagh is of a more beautiful form. More of it, or rather indeed the whole rotunda, appears at once, and it is better lighted. However, as Johnson observed, we saw the Pantheon in time of mourning, when there was a dull uniformity, whereas we had seen Ranelagh when the view was enlivened with a gay profusion of colours. Mrs. Boswell, of Gunthwaite, in Yorkshire, joined us, and entered into conversation with us. Johnson said to me afterwards, "'Sir, this is a mighty intelligent lady.' I said there was not half a guinea's worth of pleasure in seeing this place. Johnson, "'But, sir, there is half a guinea's worth of inferiority to other people in not having seen it.' Boswell, "'I doubt, sir, whether there are many happy people here.' Johnson, "'Yes, sir, there are many happy people here. There are many happy people here who are watching hundreds, and who think hundreds are watching them.' Happening to meet Sir Adam Ferguson, I presented him to Dr. Johnson. Sir Adam expressed some apprehension that the Pantheon would encourage luxury. "'Sir,' said Johnson, "'I am a great friend to public amusements, for they keep people from vice. You now,' addressing himself to me, would have been with a wench had you not been here. Oh, I forgot you were married. Sir Adam suggested that luxury corrupts a people and destroys the spirit of liberty. Johnson, sir, that is all visionary. I would not give half a guinea to live under one form of government rather than another. It is of no moment to the happiness of an individual. Sir, the danger of the abuse of power is nothing to a private man. What Frenchman is prevented from passing his life as he pleases? Sir Adam? But, sir, in the British Constitution it is surely of importance to keep up a spirit in the people, so as to preserve a balance against the crown. Johnson? Sir, I perceive you are a vile Whig. Why all this childish jealousy of the power of the crown? The crown is not power enough. When I say that all governments are alike, I consider that in no government power can be abused long. Mankind will not bear it. If a sovereign oppresses his people to a great degree, they will rise and cut off his head. There is a remedy in human nature against tyranny that will keep us safe under every form of government. Had not the people of France thought themselves honoured as sharing in the brilliant actions of Louis XIV, they would not have endured him, and we may say the same of the King of Prussia's people." Sir Adam introduced the ancient Greeks and Romans. Johnson, sir, the mass of both of them were barbarians. The mass of every people must be barbarous, where there is no printing, and consequently knowledge is not generally diffused. 
knowledge is diffused among our people by the newspapers. Sir Adam mentioned the orators, poets, and artists of Greece. Johnson, Sir, I am talking of the mass of the people. We see even what the boasted Athenians were. The little effect which Demosthenes' orations had upon them shows that they were barbarians. Sir Adam was unlucky in his topics, for he suggested a doubt of the propriety of bishops having seats in the House of Lords. Johnson, How so, sir? Who is more proper for having the dignity of a peer than a bishop, provided a bishop be what he ought to be? And if improper bishops be made, that is not the fault of the bishops, but of those who make them. On Sunday, April 5th, after attending divine service at St. Paul's Church, I found him alone. Of a schoolmaster of his acquaintance, a native of Scotland, he said, He has a great deal of good about him, but he is also very defective in some respects. His inner part is good, but his outer part is mighty awkward. You in Scotland do not attain that nice critical skill in languages which we get in our schools in England. I would not put a boy to him whom I intended for a man of learning, but for the sons of citizens who are to learn a little, get good morals, and then go to trade, he may do very well. I mentioned a cause in which I had appeared as counsel at the bar of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, where a probationer, as one licensed to preach but not yet ordained, is called, was opposed in his application to be inducted, because it was alleged that he had been guilty of fornication five years before. Johnson, why, sir, if he has repented, it is not a sufficient objection. A man who is good enough to go to heaven is good enough to be a clergyman. This was a humane and liberal sentiment, but the character of a clergyman is more sacred than that of an ordinary Christian. As he is to instruct with authority, he should be regarded with reverence, as one upon whom divine truth has had the effect to set him above such transgressions, as men less exalted by spiritual habits, and yet upon the whole not to be excluded from heaven, have been betrayed into by the predominance of passion. That clergymen may be considered as sinners in general, as all men are, cannot be denied, but this reflection will not counteract their good precepts so much as the absolute knowledge of their having been guilty of certain specific immoral acts. I told him that by the rules of the Church of Scotland in their Book of Discipline, if a scandal, as it is called, is not prosecuted for five years, it cannot afterwards be proceeded upon, unless it be of a heinous nature, or again become flagrant, and that hence a question arose whether fornication was a sin of a heinous nature, and that I had maintained that it did not deserve that epithet, inasmuch as it was not one of those sins which argue very great depravity of heart, in short, was not, in the general acceptation of mankind, a heinous sin. Johnson, no, sir, it is not a heinous sin. A heinous sin is that for which a man is punished with death or banishment. Boswell, but, sir, after I had argued that it was not a heinous sin, an old clergyman rose up, and repeating the text of Scripture denouncing judgment against whoremongers, asked whether, considering this, there could be any doubt of fornication being a heinous sin. Johnson, why, sir, observe the word, whoremonger, every sin, if persisted in, will become heinous. Whoremonger is a dealer in horse, as ironmonger is a dealer in iron. But as you don't call a man an ironmonger for buying and selling a penknife, 
so you don't call a man a whoremonger for getting one wench with child. I spoke of the inequality of the livings of the clergy in England, and the scanty provisions of some of the curates. Johnson? Why, yes, sir, but it cannot be helped. You must consider that the revenues of the clergy are not at the disposal of the state, like the pay of the army. Different men have founded different churches, and some are better endowed, some worse. The state cannot interfere and make an equal division of what has been particularly appropriated. Now, when a clergyman has but a small living, or even two small livings, he can afford very little to a curate. He said he went more frequently to church when there were prayers only than when there was also a sermon, as the people required more an example for the one than the other, it being much easier for them to hear a sermon and to fix their minds on prayer. On Monday, April 6, I dined with him at Sir Alexander Macdonald's, where was a young officer in the regimentals of the Scots Royal, who talked with a vivacity, fluency, and precision so uncommon that he attracted particular attention. He proved to be the Honourable Thomas Erskine, youngest brother to the Earl of Buchan, who has since risen into such brilliant reputation at the bar in Westminster Hall. Fielding being mentioned, Johnson exclaimed, "'He was a blockhead!' and upon my expressing my astonishment at so strange an assertion, he said, "'What I mean by his being a blockhead is that he was a barren rascal.' Boswell, "'Will you not allow, sir, that he draws very natural pictures of human life?' Johnson, "'Why, sir, it is of very low life. Richardson used to say that had he not known who Fielding was, he should have believed he was an ostler.' Sir, there is more knowledge of the heart in one letter of Richardson's than in all Tom Jones. I, indeed, never read Joseph Andrews. Erskine. Surely, sir, Richardson is very tedious. Johnson. Why, sir, if you were to read Richardson for the story, your impatience would be so much fretted that you would hang yourself. But you must read him for the sentiment and consider the story as only giving occasion to the sentiment. I have already given my opinion of Fielding, but I cannot refrain from repeating here my wonder at Johnson's excessive and unaccountable depreciation of one of the best writers that England has produced. Tom Jones has stood the test of public opinion with such success as to have established its great merit, both for the story, the sentiments, and the manners, and also the varieties of diction, so as to leave no doubt of its having an animated truth of execution throughout. A book of travels, lately published under the title of Corrid Junior, and written by Mr. Paterson, was mentioned. Johnson said, This book was an imitation of Stern, and not of Corriot, whose name Paterson had chosen as a whimsical one. Tom Corriot, said he, was a humorist about the court of James I. He had a mixture of learning, of wit, and of buffoonery, he first travelled through Europe, and published his travels. He afterwards travelled on foot through Asia, and had made many remarks, but he had died at Mandoa, and his remarks were lost. We talked of gaming, and adverted on it with severity. Johnson? Nay, gentlemen, let us not aggravate the matter. It is not roguery to play with a man who is ignorant of the game, while you are master of it, and so win his money for he thinks he can play better than you, as you think you can play better than he, and the superior skill carries it. Erskine, he is a fool, but you are not a rogue. 
Johnson. That's much about the truth, sir. It must be considered that a man who only does what every one of the society to which he belongs would do is not a dishonest man. In the Republic of Sparta it was agreed that stealing was not dishonourable if not discovered. I do not commend a society where there is an agreement that what would not otherwise be fair shall be fair, but I maintain that an individual of any society who practices what is allowed is not a dishonest man. Boswell, so then, sir, you do not think ill of a man who wins perhaps forty thousand pounds in a winter. Johnson, sir, I do not call a gamester a dishonest man, but I call him an unsocial man, an unprofitable man. Gaming is a mode of transferring property without producing any intermediate good. Trade gives employment to numbers, and so produces intermediate good. Mr. Erskine told us that when he was in the island of Minorca he not only read prayers, but preached two sermons to the regiment. He seemed to object to the passage in Scripture, where we are told that the angel of the Lord smote in one night forty thousand Assyrians. Sir, said Johnson, you should recollect that there was a supernatural interposition. They were destroyed by pestilence. You are not to suppose that the angel of the Lord went about and stabbed each of them with a dagger, or knocked them on the head, man by man. After Mr. Erskine was gone, a discussion took place whether the present Earl of Buchan, when Lord Cardress, did right to refuse to go secretary of the embassy to Spain, when Sir James Gray, a man of inferior rank, went ambassador. Dr. Johnson said that perhaps in point of interest he did wrong, but in point of dignity he did well. Sir Alexander insisted that he was wrong, and said that Mr. Pitt intended it as an advantageous thing for him. "'Why, sir,' said Johnson, "'Mr. Pitt might think it an advantageous thing for him to make him a vintner, and get him all the Portugal trade, but he would have demeaned himself strangely had he accepted of such a situation.' Sir, had he gone secretary while his inferior was ambassador, he would have been a traitor to his rank and family. I talked of the little attachment which subsisted between near relations in London. Sir, said Johnson, in a country so commercial as ours, where every man can do for himself, there is not so much occasion for that attachment. No man is thought the worse of here, whose brother was hanged. In uncommercial countries, Many of the branches of a family must depend on the stock, so in order to make the head of the family take care of them, they were represented as connected with his reputation, that, self-love being interested, he may exert himself to promote their interest. You have first large circles or clans. As commerce increases, the connection is confined to families. By degrees, that too goes off, as having become unnecessary, and there being few opportunities of intercourse. One brother is a merchant in the city, and another is an officer in the guards. How little intercourse can these two have? I argued warmly for the old feudal system. Sir Alexander opposed it, and talked of the pleasure of seeing all men free and independent. Johnson, I agree with Mr. Boswell that there must be a high satisfaction in being a feudal lord, but we are to consider that we ought not to wish to have a number of men unhappy for the satisfaction of one. I maintained that numbers, namely, the vassals or followers, were not unhappy, for that there was a reciprocal satisfaction between the lord and them, he being kind in his authority over them, 
they being respectful and faithful to him. On Thursday, April 9, I called on him to beg he would go and dine with me at the Mitre Tavern. He had resolved not to dine at all this day, I know not for what reason, and I was so unwilling to be deprived of his company that I was content to submit to suffer a want, which was at first somewhat painful, but he soon made me forget it and a man is always pleased with himself when he finds his intellectual inclinations predominate. He observed that the reason philosophically on the nature of prayer was very unprofitable. Talking of ghosts, he said he knew one friend who was an honest man and a sensible man, who told him he had seen a ghost, old Mr. Edward Cave, the printer at St. John's Gate. He said Mr. Cave did not like to talk of it, and seemed to be in great horror whenever it was mentioned. Boswell. Pray, sir, what did he say was the appearance? Johnson. Why, sir, something of a shadowy being. I mentioned witches, and asked him what they properly meant. Johnson. Why, sir, they properly mean those who make use of the aid of evil spirits. Boswell. There is no doubt, sir, a general report and belief of their having existed. Johnson, you have not only the general report and belief, but you have many voluntary solemn confessions. He did not affirm anything positively upon a subject which it is the fashion of the times to laugh at as a matter of absurd credulity. He only seemed willing, as a candid inquirer after truth, however strange and inexplicable, to show that he understood what might be urged for it. On Friday, April 10, I dined with him at General Oglethorpe's, where we found Dr. Goldsmith. Armorial bearings having been mentioned, Johnson said they were as ancient as the siege of Thebes, which he proved by a passage in one of the tragedies of Euripides. I started the question whether duelling was consistent with moral duty. The brave old general fired at this, and said, with a lofty air, "'Undoubtedly a man has a right to defend his honour. Goldsmith, turning to me, I ask you first, sir, what would you do if you were affronted? I answered, I should think it necessary to fight. Why, then, replied Goldsmith, that solves the question. Johnson? No, sir, it does not solve the question. It does not follow that what a man would do is therefore right. I said I wished to have it settled, whether duelling was contrary to the laws of Christianity, Johnson immediately entered on the subject, and treated it in a masterly manner, and so far as I have been able to recollect, his thoughts were these. Sir, as men become in a high degree refined, various causes of offence arise, which are considered to be of such importance that life must be staked to atone for them, though in reality they are not so. A body that has received a very fine polish may be easily hurt." Before men arrive at this artificial refinement, if one tells his neighbour he lies, his neighbour tells him he lies. If one gives his neighbour a blow, his neighbour gives him a blow. But in a state of highly polished society, an affront is held to be a serious injury. It must therefore be resented, or rather a duel must be fought upon it as men have agreed to banish from their society one who puts up with an affront without fighting a duel. Now, sir, it is never unlawful to fight in self-defence. 
He, then, who fights a duel, does not fight from passion against his antagonist, but out of self-defence, to avert the stigma of the world, and to prevent himself from being driven out of society. I could wish there was not that superfluity of refinement. But while such notions prevail, no doubt a man may lawfully fight a duel. Let it be remembered that this justification is applicable only to the person who receives an affront. All mankind must condemn the aggressor. The general told us that when he was a very young man, I think only fifteen, serving under Prince Eugene of Savoy, he was sitting in a company at table with the Prince of Württemberg. The prince took up a glass of wine, and, by a fillip, made some of it fly in Oglethorpe's face. Here was a nice dilemma. To have challenged him instantly might have fixed a quarrelsome character upon the young soldier. To have taken no notice of it might have been considered as cowardice. Oglethorpe, therefore, keeping his eye upon the prince, and smiling all the time, as if he took what his highness had done in jest, said, "'Man, prince!'—I forget the French words he used. The purport, however, was, "'That's a good joke, but we do it much better in England.' and threw a whole glass of wine in the prince's face. An old general who sat by said, Il a bien fait, mon prince, vous l'avez commencé, and thus all ended in good humour. Dr. Johnson said, Pray, general, give us an account of the siege of Belgrade, upon which the general, pouring a little wine upon the table, described everything with a wet finger. Here we were, here were the Turks, etc., etc., Johnson listened with the closest attention. A question was started how far people who disagree in a capital point can live in friendship together. Johnson said they might. Goldsmith said they could not, as they had not the idem vela atque idem nolle, the same likings and the same aversions. Johnson, why, sir, you must shun the subject as to which you disagree. For instance, I can live very well with Burke. I love his knowledge his genius, his diffusion, and affluence of conversation, but I would not talk to him of the Rockingham party. Goldsmith? But, sir, when people live together who have something as to which they disagree, and which they want to shun, they will be in the situation mentioned in the story of Bluebeard. You may look into all the chambers but one. But we should have the greatest inclination to look into that chamber, to talk of that subject. Johnson, with a loud voice, Sir, I am not saying that you could live in friendship with a man from whom you differ as to some point. I am only saying that I could do it. You put me in mind of Sappho in Ovid. Goldsmith told us that he was now busy in writing a natural history, and that he might have full leisure for it he had taken lodgings at a farmer's house near to the Six Milestone on the Edgware Road, and he had carried down his books in two returned post-chaises. He said he believed the farmer's family thought him an odd character, similar to that in which the spectator appeared to his landlady and her children. He was the gentleman. Mr. Mickle, the translator of the Lusiad, and I went to visit him at this place a few days afterwards. He was not at home, but having a curiosity to see his apartment, we went in and found curious scraps of descriptions of animals, scrawled upon the wall with a black lead pencil. The subject of ghosts being introduced, Johnson repeated what he had told me of a friend of his, an honest man, and a man of sense, having asserted to him that he had seen an apparition, 
Goldsmith told us, he was assured by his brother, the Reverend Mr. Goldsmith, that he also had seen one. General Oglethorpe told us that Prendergast, an officer in the Duke of Marlborough's army, had mentioned to many of his friends that he should die on a particular day, that upon that day a battle took place with the French, that after it was over and Prendergast was still alive, his brother officers, while they were yet in the field, jestingly asked him where was his prophecy now. Prendergast gravely answered, I shall die, notwithstanding what you see. Soon afterwards there came a shot from a French battery, to which the orders for a cessation of arms had not yet reached, and he was killed upon the spot. Colonel Cecil, who took possession of his effects, found in his pocket-book the following solemn entry. Here the date. Dreamt, or Sir John Friend meets me. Here the very date on which he was killed was mentioned. Prendergast had been connected with Sir John Friend, who was executed for high treason. General Oglethorpe said he was with Colonel Cecil when Pope came and inquired into the truth of his story, which made a great noise at the time, and was then confirmed by the Colonel. End of section 9